Welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Events Podcast, where we bring you the audio from our public programs, featuring in-depth analysis of topics on China from scholars, journalists, authors, and policymakers. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org. I am Margot Landman, Deputy Vice President for Programs at the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations. As everybody knows, our speaker today is Michael Schumann, who is out with a new book, Superpower Interrupted which we will be talking about today. He is joining us from Hong Kong. So with that, Michael, thank you very much for taking the time, especially so late in the evening. Let's get started with a little bit of background. Why did you decide to write this particular book now? And who is the intended audience? Well, first, thank you for organizing the event to everyone at, at the uh, committee and, and to you, Margot, as well, especially for for uh, making this happen and for so many so many great people to kind of uh, join the event today. I really appreciate it. Uh, but uh, to your question, you know, I I started uh, this book started with with me just kind of thinking about the way we learn history. Uh, you know, I I grew up in New Jersey and and you know I just went to a regular you know high school in New Jersey and and uh, you know my my traces. Uh, of what I could, what history I could study was, you know, American history and American history. Uh, and, and, you know, we learned a little bit about other parts of the world, but, you know, only in the context of, of that, of that narrative. Uh, and I, I think, I started thinking that a, a lot of people around the world learn history the same way, that uh, they learn whatever segment, segment of what's happened in the world is most connected to, to them and who they are where they live and and i think that that shapes a lot of who we are and what our societies look like and how we see the world around us and how we how we fit into the how we think we fit into the world around us and and how to interpret events and so that then led to, to the next step which which is you know the china has its own its own history and its own version of history and its own view of history uh, and I thought with everything going on with the rise of China and of course more with these, the state of U.S.-China relations and, and where that's going and, and the importance of China to the U.S., the importance of China to the world, the importance of the rise of China to what's going to be happening over the next hundred years, that I thought it, it would be useful to, for uh, people who don't know this Chinese history uh, to, to learn more about it and to learn the Chinese historical narrative and to learn more about how, in that historical narrative, how the Chinese have seen world events and how they've seen uh, their role and, and their, kind of their, their society's role in the world over time. And I thought from there, it would, be, it would help us understand China's ambitions today and where China's going. Uh, I mean, the book is really, the, the intended audience is actually people who probably maybe don't know so much about China, but uh, read, are reading about China every day in the newspapers and, and want some historical context uh, about China, and also much specifically China as a power and, and China, China as, a, as a great power in, in the world and what impact China has had. In the 
context of the scope of history, what does it mean to have been a superpower before the modern age of communication and transportation? Yeah, that, uh, that's a good question. I kind of cheated on the superpower concept because, of course, the idea of a superpower is, is a more modern concept, and I kind of like projected it backwards uh, for argument's sake. Um, but when you when you look at Chinese history, you know China was always a, always the dominant power in East Asia. Uh, I, not of course every single year. There were periods when China was weak, when the dynasties collapsed, and there were civil wars and there were invasions and all kinds of bad stuff happened. But uh, when when you uh, there was uh, long stretches of history uh, when China was a dominant power in, in the region. Uh, not just politically, but also economically, technologically. And I think actually in this context, uh, the most important is civilizationally. I don't actually know if that's a word, but the, you know, when you think about, you know, East Asia, you know, what is East Asia? East Asia is really kind of a Chinese cultural zone. Uh, and the, the, the peoples around each East Asia, when they were building their own societies and their own governments, you know, they, they looked they look to China as a model and they, they borrowed uh, Chinese, institute, uh, Chinese government institutions and legal codes and they read Chinese books and of course they borrowed the Chinese language and Chinese characters, uh, Chinese artistic styles. So when, when you look at the role that China has, has played uh, in the world, in, in global civilization, Yes, I mean, in, in before modern times, they couldn't necessarily reach around the world in the way that the U.S. does uh, today. But you can see it in a super as a superpower within its own historical context. You describe Chinese foreign affairs as based on unequal relations with other countries. If they accepted and acknowledged China's superiority peaceful diplomacy would follow. What does that suggest for international relations today, especially as we think about, quote unquote, mask diplomacy, wolf warrior diplomacy, and China's actions in Hong Kong, where you are, the South China Sea, at the India-China border, et cetera? No. No, it, it's, I mean, uh, there's, there's obviously been a tremendous amount of debate in, in academia and in policy circles about how the Chinese see power, how the Chinese have wielded power in the past. Uh, you know, there's, there's this concept historically of the tribute system and what the tribute system has been and whether there was a tribute system or there wasn't a tribute system. I mean, you could put five Chinese historians in a room and get them talking about the tribute system and they'll probably end up in a fist fight actually. But I, I think there's one thing that kind of, it was for my research that became clear, however you wanted, wanted to define this, is uh, China always saw the world as, as a hierarchy. And uh, the Chinese believed that as a superior civilization, uh, they believed that, that they kind of had a right to be and they deserved to be at, at the top of this global hierarchy. And uh, that, that's how their relations with other peoples generally worked. And 
when they weren't in a position of superiority, they didn't really like it a whole lot. And uh, they, would, they would basically try to, to reestablish their position of superiority. And I think you can see that going on, on today. Uh, this government's foreign policy, in some respects, does resemble the old imperial governments, in other respects, does not. Uh, but you can, you can see the way that China deals with its neighbors in somewhat of a high-handed way when you look at their relations with Vietnam, when you look at their relations with South, South Korea, for example, uh, when you look at their, their actions, and, the, and as you said, in the, the South China Sea, uh, there, there's a, there's a, uh, I, there's a, a kind of a perception that I think in it that, that there, that what they say matters more, uh, and uh, that what they, they, their, their rights are more important than other people's rights, and you know I think that's kind of a leftover idea uh, from this very, very long imperial history, when uh, when China was always dealing with its neighbors from its perspective from uh, a position of superiority. I mean, in real life, the relations didn't necessarily happen that, that way. Things maybe were more equal than they actually sounded. But in, in Chinese political thinking and ideology and the way the ceremonies worked and the way they thought about themselves versus other countries, that they always, in, they, it was always China and then there was everybody else who was basically seen as a tributary or a vassal. They were, the you know, other peoples were not, were not perceived as equals. And I think you can see that creeping into Chinese modern foreign policy. All right, I will turn to an audience question now. This comes from Eric Druart at Assumption University in Worcester, Massachusetts. Based on what is happening in Hong Kong and China, take it, sorry, based on what is happening in Hong Kong and China taking a stronger role over its governance, do you foresee the possibility in the short term of a conflict with Taiwan? Well, that's a big question actually out here right now because there have been heightened fears that uh, after Hong Kong that Taiwan is next. I mean, the, the Taiwan foreign minister has been, has been running around telling everybody just that for about three, four months now. Uh, and the, you're, you're seeing China increase military pressure on Taiwan uh, at the moment. Uh, and I know that there's some people who follow Taiwan uh, actually much more clo closely than, than I do, uh, who, who seem to have become more alarmed than they would normally. You know, this is a, as you know, this is an old conflict that's had many kind of scares and there's saber rattling sometimes. And so, so, the, so the question is, when do you really push the panic button? Uh, you know, and, and there's other people who feel that what you see happening with China and Taiwan is, is part of a longer term strategy on the part of Beijing to just continue to turn up the pressure on, on Taiwan in every way that, that, it's, that it can to kind of undermine confidence in the government in, in Taiwan. Uh, but, I, but I think what you're seeing is, yes, this move into Hong Kong has, and the way it happened and the pace at which it's happened, and the way that China showed basically very little regard for what the world had to say about it, has, has certainly alarmed uh, people the region about China's ambitions and and what China may be looking to next, and 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 how the situation in Washington, the changing nature of kind of the global global order, uh, and and whether 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 
people in Beijing see now as an opportunity to do things that previous Chinese leaders uh, have maybe not thought maybe they couldn't do. And uh, maybe Taiwan is one of those. I'm going to ask you a question looking forward, and then we're going to go back to a bit of history. This question comes from Tom Watkins. Does China and the United States relationship improve post-U.S. presidential election or get worse, become a dream or a nightmare? Will the direction depend in any significant manner, depending on Biden or Trump victory, a Biden or Trump victory, given the ever-increasing anti-China sentiment among the American people? He doesn't mention it, but there was a recent Pew study that showed some astonishing percentage of Americans with a very negative view of China. Yeah. Uh, I, if there is a change in the White House uh, in November, um, I think you'll definitely see a change of kind of of tone towards China, I think definitely. Uh, and I think maybe some very specific elements of policy. But uh, I don't think you're going to see a change in the general direction of U.S. policy at, at this stage. I think, as as you said, the perception that China uh, is is hostile to the United States it's just it's just become widespread among the American public. I think it's extremely politically difficult for any president right now to you know to go back to 20, 2013, 2014. Uh, but beyond that, when you look at also what's what's going on within the, the political establishment, I mean it's it's remarkable how few friends China has in Washington these days on any, any side of the political spectrum. Uh, I mean, there's, I, this, I think China may be the only bipartisan issue right now. Uh, and, and everyone agrees that there needs to be a, a tougher line on China. And in some ways, I think the Democrats could potentially be tougher. Uh, you know, Trump does a lot of stuff that uh, sounds tough and annoys Beijing, but has, has, doesn't have much actual impact on what's going on. And I think what you can see is China's actually become more assertive and more aggressive uh, over the course of the Trump presidency, not, not less so, and seemingly less willing to make accommodations to the United States or really anybody else. Uh, and so I, in some ways, I think a Biden presidency that I think will return to a more traditional American foreign policy where you're working through allies, working through institutions. I actually think that that's potentially much, much more dangerous to China and kind of in, in, a, real, in a real power sense. If, if the Chinese can't play off the Europeans and Americans and Japanese and so on or in the way that they, they are right now, and there's a little bit more uniform, you know, uh, consensus among the major democracies as to how to approach China, uh, I think that actually potentially uh, from a from Beijing standpoint, much, much scarier than anything the Trump administration is doing. I'm going to hold off on going back because back in time, because I think that leads very nicely to Sabina Knight's question. She's a professor of Chinese and comparative literature at Smith College. And she submitted a quite long question that I'm not going to read in full, 
But the gist of it is how does an American in this time of very anti-Chinese sentiment present a sympathetic interpretation, these are her words, sympathetic interpretation of Chinese worldviews without seeming like a China apologist? Well, uh, yeah, I mean, as, as Professor Knight said, I mean, the, uh, you know, the public is so polarized on this issue. I mean, you know, one day on Twitter, I'm getting, I'm getting attacked as a, a traitor to the United States and, you know, a Communist Party stooge. And then the next day I'm getting attacked is by the, by Chinese nationalists of being basically, you know, a racist and, and anti-China. So, uh, you know, just- So you must be doing you, something right. Uh, maybe that's the way of looking at it, that I'm striking a balance and everyone's angry at me. Yes, I get that through. But it, it, uh, it's, it's a very difficult issue. I mean, I feel that even being involved, as a lot of us are, in China studies seems to make you suspect in the eyes of the public that somehow you can, you know, you're, you, that you're, you're somehow being traitorous to the United States. Um, I, I, I think the way that maybe one way of doing it is just making sure that everything is put into proper historical context. You know, and what, this gets at one of the issues I dealt with in writing this book, because it's kind of like, well, when you want to present the Chinese view, what is what is a Chinese view exactly, right? Uh, and there's there's two problems with it because you know the first is that history is and events are constantly being reinterpreted, and you know history is always being rewritten and and uh, uh, understood differently and interpreted differently and reinterpreted some more. So. So then, you know, what exactly the Chinese view? And what I didn't want to do is, I didn't want to do, let's say, a Communist Party history of the world. Uh, the Communist Party likes to equate itself with China, but that's not necessarily really the case. Uh, and a Communist Party history of, of, the, of, the wor of the world or even of China brings in all kinds of distortions uh, that uh, are very, very difficult to deal with. So, uh, and then of course, the second aspect of it is what is Chinese? Uh, because obviously the Chinese of, of today uh, are not like the Chinese of, of you know, a thousand years ago, not even 500, 200 years ago, society changes. And what should the word Chinese means, of course, has changed as well. So, uh, so, so what is a Chinese view? So, I mean, what I decided to do with my book, and it's obviously not an imperfect, it's an imperfect solution, was to... Um, to go back through time and see what people who associated themselves with Chinese civilization, uh, Chinese, were, were writing about themselves versus other people, were writing about China in the world, writing about foreign affairs at the time of the events that they were, and the, that they were living through or as close as possible. And so you're getting almost like a, a contemporary uh, Chinese view as to what was going on and what their views were. And from there, when you look, when you trace this over time, then you could start to cut some ideas, some consistencies, uh, some ideas that kept coming up again and again, where you can get the idea of what, what, is, what is a Chinese view. Um, so for me, I think one of the ways of taking this out of the current political uh, rhetoric and, and uh, heated nature of this argument and debate is that when you're talking about China, it's a, it's a try the best that we can to kind of place this into 
the historical context in which things are happening and address this idea that maybe these views have changed over time and, and how this current government may or may not share those views in, in the past. And I don't think this has to be sympathetic or unsympathetic. Uh, I, I think it can just be, you know, basically historical analysis, uh, you know, as it is. Okay, let's go back to the 19th century. We have two somewhat related questions. One is from Stephen Thomas at the University of Colorado in Denver, who asks, what role did racism play in China's 19th century interactions with the Western powers? And Helena Kalenda of the Henry Luce Foundation says, how does the quote-unquote century of humiliation intersect with China's perception of its superiority as you describe it? Yeah, uh, I will start with the second one. Uh, it's, it's it because I called, my, I called my book Superpower Interrupted because I felt that China's confrontation with the West starting roughly two, 200 years ago was different than the other, other confrontations that it had with outsiders over time. And, and I think it's, what made a difference was basically how, how thoroughly the pillars of Chinese power were knocked away by the West, right? I mean, China has lost uh, many battles to many people militarily. It has been uh, at, at periods where it, it was in, in political chaos. Uh, so what made the confrontation with the West different? Well, you had that, but you also had China facing a civilizational challenge where it, it ran into a group of people who actually thought their civilization was superior and China was backward. And, and this was, I think, something new in Chinese history. And in the past, whoever China had confronted uh, tended to at least to in part adopt Chinese culture and adopt Chinese ways. And that, that wasn't happening really with the West. And, and this, to a certain extent, created a civilizational crisis um, where the, the Chinese began to look around and say, well, why, why are we so weak and the Western powers are so strong? And they decided that uh, it was basically Chinese, Chinese civilization was the problem and they needed to adopt certain aspects of, of, of the West from you know, representative government uh, America, uh, law, philosophy, or, uh, economic organization. I don't think the Chinese have, have borrowed so much from the outside world in such a concentrated period of time. Uh, so, you know, that, I think that's why this, this period of, of that century of humiliation was so incredibly jarring. Uh, but I think what, what you're finding today, and you'll see this again in Chinese history again and again, whenever China has gone through an awful period, uh, and they they managed to rebuild the, their power, which they've done many times in the past. One of the remarkable features of Chinese history is how often they've rebuilt themselves in, into a major power. And you, you see that going on today. They tended to kind of pick up where they left off in this idea of their own, their own superiority. When you look at like the Ming after the, the Mongol invasion, which was a terrible period in Chinese history, you know, the Ming picked up kind of uh, Chinese principles of foreign policy as if that whole period had really never happened. Uh, so I don't, it, it's a little different this time because the, 
as I said, the confrontation with the West was so, di was, was so difficult and different. But I think what you're seeing today is, is to a certain extent, when you look at the, the language that's, that comes out of Xi Jinping's speeches, you're seeing him reassert some of these ideas about, about the greatness of China. He knows his history, and he's trying to place his government and China today, I think, into this greater, this greater scope of Chinese history. And I think he sees what's happening today uh, not as a new rise, but as basically a, a restoration. And I think a lot of these old ideas, these long-standing ideas that China has had, you know, are coming back as well in foreign policy and in, in other ways. Um, to, before I go on too long, in terms of the first question, uh, the subject of race is not one I actually spent a, a tremendous amount of time on. I mean, there's some, uh, there's an interesting book called Origins of the Chinese Nation, if I have the title right, that's a relatively new book, which, which makes the case that, that uh, Chinese, kind of chi the Chinese idea of nationalism, the idea of the Han people, actually goes much farther back to like, than let's say the, to, to, the Song, to the Song Dynasty period. Uh, but I think a lot of kind of more modern ideas about race and, and uh, how the Chinese race compares to other races was kind of a modern import in the 19th century uh, when, when the Chinese reformers learned about things like social Darwinism and they began to look at Europeans as, well, this is a white race and look at how powerful they are and, and why. And we, based on our history, we should be a powerful race like that too. And how do you get there? So I think a lot of these ideas about racial competition, uh, and at least in any kind of widespread sense, are, you know, are relatively, are relatively new 19th century kind of a, adoptions in Chinese history. Uh, and I think that did have an effect on how the reformers saw where China had to go. They, they write about it very often. If we don't want our race to, to you know, basically be slaves of the more powerful races, then we, we have to change uh, our society and our, our civilization. And so uh, I think those ideas about race and racial competition did, did play a very big role about, in, in terms of where Chinese, where Chinese history went in the 19th century, into the 20th century. We have a question from an anonymous viewer. How can there be a quote unquote Chinese view at all with a country of 1.3 billion people living in vastly unequal society? China, much like the US, is not monolithic. I assume you are speaking primarily to official narratives and perspectives. If you had to incorporate a quote-unquote people's perspective, what would change about your interpretation? Yeah, that, that's interesting. I mean, unfortunately, when, you take a, when you're taking a long historical view that I did where you're, you know, you're going, I'm going all the way back to you know, the time of Confucius, uh, you know, we don't have a tremendous amount of, let's say, writing on foreign affairs from people who were in scholars and statesmen. And, uh, uh, you know, you have some from other writers like poets and this kind of thing. But, you know, it's, I think it's very difficult when you go back in time to even to get kind of a, uh, the view of what you would say to the average person. Um, the, the average, we don't have records very much from a lot of the average people. Uh, so, but that's, so yeah, so then you end up when you're, when you're, when you're telling the story of a Chinese worldview, you're, you're telling of the story of the people who wrote about that Chinese worldview, which is obviously a, a very small subset of overall society. Uh, but I, it's, it's kind of what you're stuck with. 
But you could argue, since this is a book and we're dealing with China and the world and China, China's foreign affairs and foreign relations, to a certain extent, these are the people who also mattered because these were the people who were making the decisions and shaping the ideas. Um, but, you know, when I think you're right, you know, today, what, you're, what we're dealing with is, you know, a government that consistently says, you know, uh, speaks in the name of 1.4 million people and reminds people of that over and over again. And obviously, that's, that's really not the case. Uh, I think what's, what's sad today uh, is that because of the level of, of, of control that this government has uh, over Chinese society, and media and social media and the discourse that goes on and how carefully they're monitoring even people's private communications. It's extremely difficult to get a sense of what the Chinese people actually may want and think about what they want China to be and where they want China going and what, what kind of relations uh, they want China to have with the world. I think there are, there is, it doesn't mean that the, the government is unpopular or unrepresentative, obviously, you know, it, 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 there are people who are supportive of the government and, the go and what the government is doing and share the government's views. But of course, there's a lot of people who don't. Uh, and you can get this idea on kind of a, a personal basis sometimes, but it's very, very difficult to get this, get a sense of what's happening on an overall societal basis. And, uh, you know, we know personally, there's, there are many Chinese who don't necessarily agree with aspects of what their government is doing, let's say with, with US policy, for instance, there's nervousness over where uh, the, the government is taking China in the world, the conflicts that China is having with a lot of other major countries right now. Uh, you know, there, there's a lot of Chinese who want to be a part of the world like everybody else. And I think they're worried that, that their opportunities will become uh, narrowed uh, as, as this proceeds. So, um, but unfortunately, in the, with the nature of the government, you know, it's, it's not like there's independent polls that, you know, Margot just mentioned a Pew Research Center poll where you can get an idea about uh, what Americans thinking are, are, are thinking on things. There are some polls that are done in China, but, you know, if you think that uh, the average Chinese who gets, who's going to be talking to some random person is going to give you an honest opinion of their own government, uh, you know, I don't think you're really getting, I don't think there's any way of getting a very good picture overall about what the Chinese people are thinking right now. We have a follow-up question on that from Dan Biederman. He asks, what evidence is there about how or whether attitudes about the U.S. have changed recently among different Chinese population groups? I'm thinking particularly about Chinese business people who do or aspire to do business outside of China. Yeah, uh, it's, uh, it's a good question and I wish I had a better answer uh, because again, it's, it's very difficult to get any kind of, any kind of uh, um, statistic, statistically significant uh, view on what, what people are thinking. Um, but you know, you can to a certain extent you can you can see based on how people are behaving. Uh, you know, Chinese uh, are still the largest uh, foreign buyers of American real American residential real estate. Uh, they've been that they have been that way for eight consecutive years. Uh, you you don't see, for example, a significant in decrease 
in uh, the number of Chinese wanting going to study in the United States and wanting to study in in the U.S. Uh, so. I think what you're seeing in its growing hostility between China and the U.S., yes, that's whipped up some kind of anti-U.S. national sentiment in China in the way that it would, I think, in, in any society. Uh, but there is still a tremendous segment of the, of the Chinese population that wants to engage with the U.S., that wants to travel there, that wants to live there, that wants to study there, that wants to watch Hollywood movies uh, like a lot of other people around the world. And I, there's a lot of Chinese businessmen who I think are extremely concerned about uh, what relations with the U.S. mean for their their business future. I mean, look what's happening with ByteDance and, and TikTok right now. I mean, this is a uh, uh, a business that has been tremendously innovative and created a, a very successful business in in the U.S. Uh, only to see it basically uh, uh, threatened by basically really nothing more than than politics and uh, distrust of, of China in the U.S. This is obviously not where U.S. or Chinese businessmen, especially private businessmen, want to see things going. Uh, so um, this is where you get into we were, what I was mentioning uh, a few minutes ago, that there is a segment of the Chinese population that would rather not see China heading in the direction where it's headed and China-U.S. relations heading in the direction that they're heading. You mentioned just now Hollywood, and I'm sure that you've seen some of the furor around yeah. Mulan and yeah. it's filming in Xinjiang. And my question is, there's partly soft power in Hollywood movies. There's also obviously a lot of money involved. What's your view of what Disney and other Hollywood movie producers are doing to make sure that they have access to the Chinese market? Well, you know, it's, it, I think what you're seeing is symbolic of a, of a, of a, of a bigger uh, issue that's going on and, and that, you know, uh, a business cannot go on as normal uh, with the the Chinese government becoming more and more uh, 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 moving moving into in in more and more into with authoritarianism and there you you the Chinese authoritarianism authoritarianism in the shape that it's taking and business are just not able to mix and this what's happening to TikTok uh, and Huawei you know why don't we trust TikTok and Huawei. It actually doesn't have to do with these companies themselves. It has to do with the fact that we don't trust the Chinese state. Uh, and we don't trust the Chinese state because they're becoming more oppressive at home. And, uh, and they're, they're promoting authoritarian ideals more and more outside the country. Uh, and it's, it's, uh, it's the same thing what happened with the NBA, for instance, as well. So you're seeing more and more companies getting, getting dragged into into these issues, and of course, movies in Hollywood. This is just a. Um, this has always been a minefield, and now there's just a lot more mines in, in the minefield. Um, you know, I I think it's basically, more or less impossible, for Hollywood studios to attempt to make another Mulan at this stage, to make a film that's about China, that's too great to be targeted for for Chinese, because on the one hand, it opens you up to all kinds of. Uh, 
uh, uh, uh, criticism that you're seeing right now in the United States. And, and then it's extremely difficult on the other end to please the Chinese government, whatever you do. Uh, you know, there's been a lot of criticism of Mulan, you know, in China as well. Um, so I think that for me, if I'm a Hollywood studio executive, which I'm not, but the way, the way I'm thinking about this is, you know, I'll stick to my Marvel uh, superhero movies and my Star Wars movies and uh, my Jane Bond movies, and I can make a lot of money off these, and they're not nearly as politically sensitive, uh, and I don't have to, I can make money in China uh, without having to wander, navigate my way through the minefield. That's where I think things are going to go. Uh, that's where I think, I think that's the safest route, I think, for Hollywood to go in. Okay. Um, we have a question from Benjamin Beese. He says, you mentioned how difficult it is to be a China expert in the United States now because multiple agencies, I think he means government agencies, view knowledgeable scholars slash practitioners with suspicion. How can current China studies students and young professionals document themselves now to counter this suspicion in the future. I am concerned our government will lack China expertise if agencies continue to broadly classify qualified individuals as compromised. Yeah, well, you know, I, I don't know how much uh, that is a function, a permanent function of uh, US government and the policy making establishment. You know, because when you look at what's going on with the Trump administration, they have a disdain for expertise, more or less, across the board. I mean, you're seeing it right now with the pandemic. Uh, you're seeing it on climate. Uh, so, you know, there's, there's a long list. So uh, I'm not sure if there's a, a, a change of administration that this is something that uh, is going to be as, as big a worry as it is now. Uh, you know, and, and look, I think the Trump administration's, you know, uh, disdained for expertise is showing up in their China policy. Uh, you know, there's there's a couple people that are involved in their China policy that I think kind of kind of generally know know their stuff. But you know, uh, you can see in a lot of things that they do and say, uh, in some of the steps that they've taken, uh, that they they don't really understand uh, modern China. The, they they talk about. China's economy as if it's, it's, an, it's basically 1992. Uh, you know, they, they, they don't have an understanding of the US-China business relationship and trade relationship. Um, they, they have very little understanding of kind of, I think China's recent history and what kind of ambitions that China has. Uh, so, and I think that's very, very clear in, in the policies that they've been devising. And it's very, uh, and I think that's the reason why you're, you're, you're seeing such poor outcomes of this policy. Uh, so I'm hopeful that there's a change of administration that the, the new State Department and the new White House will start to, start to listen a little bit more carefully to people with greater experience in China. Let us hope. Um, Austin <laughs> Voles of Avenues Beijing has a question about technology. Many of the modern tech leaders are based in the West, Bill Gates, Steve Jobs, Elon Musk, but China's history is full of important discoveries such as movable type, gunpowder, and the compass. 
Are there modern day examples of technology leadership that are overlooked in the West? How does China think about its history and future role in technology leadership? Well, I think it's very clear that the Chinese leadership realizes that uh, in order to be a great power, they, they need to be a technological leader. And, uh, you know, a lot of, when, when you look at China historically, uh, China was always one of the large, for large stretches of time was uh, one of the largest economies in the world and, and was a, uh, an engine of global trade. You know, going back to the old days of, of the Silk Road, there, there's, there's more and more research being done about uh, how, how far back the nature of kind of a global economy actually, actually uh, stretches in, in, in history. And uh, uh, China was an engine of world trade long before kind of the Portuguese made their way around Africa into the Indian Ocean. A lot of that was because they made stuff uh, that no one else knew how to make or didn't make as well. Uh, most notably, you know, porcelain, of course, is one, silk is another. Uh, so I think, this China, I think the Chinese government realizes that if they're going to continue to play an, an important role in the global economy, that they need to become more advanced uh, technologically. The question is, can they get there? Uh, you're seeing some innovation. This isn't to say the Chinese can't innovate. They most certainly can innovate. Uh, and uh, they're showing that. We were talking about TikTok. Um, there are some, uh, some things, for example, that, that Tencent uh, and Alibaba have done that are very, very inventive. Um, having said that, though, this is really stuff to a certain extent that's, that's on the margins. I mean, uh, the Chinese haven't had a breakthrough. Uh, you know, they, they make a lot of really nice mobile phones, but uh, they, didn't, they didn't create the iPhone. Uh, a lot of it, you know, they, a lot of Chinese internet uh, giants are, are, are more or less local copies of what's, what's gone on in, in the U.S. Um, we can, you know, uh, actually a friend of mine the other day noted that 40 years into Japan's post-war economic rise, they had a, a large number of major global brands with a lot of very inventive products that, that uh, were being bought all over the world. Uh, China is 40 years into its post-war economic development, and uh, it's very hard to name, name one, uh, actually, like that. So um, we can, this is a whole different uh, discussion about why that is. Some of it is just because China is catching up and is still in catch-up stage, and it's hard to catch up. Uh, this stuff isn't easy. Chips, chips, is, chips aren't easy. Uh, you know, uh, advanced technology isn't easy, and it and you, that's why very few emerging economies have managed to become technological powers in modern times. So China has a, has a a lot of hurdles ahead, uh, and uh, we can talk about whether the nature of Chinese society, where you don't have free flow of information academic freedom uh, and is that the most conducive environment for the kind of breakthrough innovation that China actually actually needs? Are the, the, the role of the state and the economy in the way that uh, the, the government increasingly favors state companies and state programs over private, private industry? Is that really good for Chinese innovation going forward? The answers are probably no, but we'll have to see how this plays out in the next 20 years. Okay, we have two questions related to the Chinese Communist Party. One is from an anonymous viewer. 
do you see the 100th anniversary of the founding of the CPC next year influencing China's foreign policy? And the other from the Journal Square Community Association, so I think a fellow New Jerseyan for you, Michael, <laughs> what are the chances that the CCP will lose power within the next 50 years? If that happens, what kind of regime would be likely to replace it? A military dictatorship, a democracy? Uh, the, the second question is an unanswerable question. Uh, I, I'd love to know where the Chinese Communist Party will be in 50 years. Uh, right now, there's really not a lot of signs of change. Uh, I mean, the party has, a, has an, an amazing grip on what happens in China. Uh, that doesn't mean everybody loves the party, and that doesn't mean that the Chinese people, a lot of, all the Chinese people like it that way. Uh, but, you know, at the same time, it's very difficult at the moment uh, to see any kind of movement to change that taking shape. Um, in terms of the, uh, the first question, uh, I, I don't know about the communist, the anniversary specifically having an impact on foreign policy, but uh, I think what is, what is having an impact on foreign policy is a way that the party is, is increasingly selling itself as uh, the, the ultimate defender of, of China. Uh, you know, the, the message that you hear from Xi Jinping and from state media relentlessly uh, is that, you know, the party is going to make China great again, and the party is going to uh, uh, defend the Chinese nation and the Chinese, Chinese interests, and uh, the party is never going to allow China to be bullied and, and humiliated again. And uh, so when you've when you set up a tremendous amount of your domestic political message as uh, we will we will stand up for the Chinese people at all times and and uh, uh, what happened you know in the opium war is never going to happen again uh, to a certain extent that 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 puts you in something of a box uh, where it limits your ability uh, to negotiate with other with other powers it limits your flexibility in policy. Uh, it, it, uh, it makes it extremely difficult to uh, make concessions, let's say, on trade to the United States. It makes it uh, uh, difficult to stand back from positions that have been taken. And, uh, and I think you're seeing that in a government that's becoming increasingly strident in its foreign policy and increasingly entrenched and stubborn in its foreign policy. And if, if they're more aware and they're looking what's going on around them, they're not winning friends and influencing people right now. Uh, and, uh, and I think that's mainly a function of uh, domestic politics and the way, the, the, way the, the party markets itself internally to its own people that paralyzes itself on the world stage. We have two related questions. One comes from Larry Sullivan, a retired professor from Adelphi University. He says, traditionally, China opposed the use of force to expand the empire, though there were some notable exceptions. Is that still the dominant view today at political and popular levels? And then somebody named Jan Wan, a law student at George Washington University says, 
you argue in your book, the question became not if China could reclaim its former dominant position in the world, but when it would do so. What would a world dominated by China look like? What's, what position would Western civilization be in? Okay, so th those are small questions that I'll, I'll try to tackle in the next two minutes. The, the, uh, um, I, uh, the view that, that China has generally opposed uh, force is very, I think, widely held uh, among Chinese. Uh, I know I get, I get tweets all the time from Chinese saying that China's always been a peaceful power and China never invaded anybody and this kind of thing. So I think that's, that's definitely part of the way that I think a lot of the Chinese perceive themselves and that their own history. And I know why, uh, pe looking back, people think that there's an element of truth in that. Uh, when I was first doing research and on this book and, and thinking about this, uh, I also kind of came, my first conclusion was that uh, the, the, the periods in which China was expansionist in a military sense were actually relatively few and generally short. Uh, but recently I've changed my thinking on this actually. And I'm feeling that uh, I'm feeling that China actually traditionally has not been a peaceful power and used its military advantage when it was able to. Uh, when you look at there were, there, when, when the dynasties were strong enough, they tended to be expansionist and they tended to be militaristic. When you look at the former Han dynasty, you look at the early, the early emperors of the Tang dynasty, um, uh, the, 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 the early Song uh, wanted to expand militarily, but just didn't do a very good job of it. Uh, perhaps the, the Ming are probably the most isolationist in this sense, but even they went through a period in the early 15th century you know, when they invaded uh, Vietnam, for instance. And then, of course, you have the Qing, or they weren't Chinese, but uh, you know, they, they were greatly expansionist. And when the Chinese took over the empire from, from the Qing, they, they didn't renounce these conquests. Uh, they now consider them to be uh, part of part of a key part of modern China. So, uh, and after these conquests were made, it's not that new emperors came in and renounced them. They tried to hold on to their their uh, the areas that they conquered, uh, and in some cases they were able to. I mean, the for example, when the Han took uh, control of most of southeastern China, it stayed part of China after that. So my view, my view has changed and, on this. And, and I think there's a case to be made that, uh, that China will use military force when it is able to. That sounds uh, a bit ominous. <laughs> well, in terms of then, uh, in terms of the, the second question, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, you can see this, taking shape in China today, where, you know, the government talks endlessly about peaceful development, and that's basically its, its model, and it's a way of trying to kind of convince the region and the world that the rise of China isn't a scary thing. Uh, but then what, that if they're really into peaceful development, why are they militarizing the South China Sea? Why are they having a confrontation on the Indian border right now? Uh, why are they going through a 
massive naval expansion, uh, the, one of the biggest naval, expan naval expansions in modern history. Uh, why are they uh, sending jets uh, closer and closer to Taiwan? So if they want to appear as a peaceful power that's not interested in using force, uh, then they, you think that they'd be taking a different policy on, on the ground. So I think what you're seeing is a disconnect between uh, China's perception of itself as a power and China's reality, the reality of the way China has used power. China would not be the first country or society that had this disconnect. I think the U.S. has something of that disconnect as well. Um, but, uh, you know, the, I, I, it's, I, I'm feeling it's increasingly difficult to make the case that somehow China will wield power differently as a superpower than other great powers have. We have a question that's relevant to where you are seated right now from Frank Ma. He asks, what are your views on the future of Hong Kong? Can it remain a global financial center? What are the chances of universal suffrage in Hong Kong? Um, in terms of, of the Hong Kong economy, I'm, I'm doing some work on that right now. I mean, I, I think there's a general perception that, that things are going to change. Uh, that, you know, you're, you're heading towards an environment where you're, you're not going to have the free flow of information and probably the rule of law that you've had that has made Hong Kong a successful financial, uh, financial capital. I know there are some people in the finance industry who will disagree with that, uh, who believe that somehow this national security law and the way Beijing is going to use it can somehow uh, be segmented off from uh, more commercial aspects of law and information. Uh, I'm, of, I'm of the view that there's no such thing as free speech except, but uh, there are people here who think that, that that's going to happen and that the Hong Kong can continue on as a finance center as it is. Um, you know, it, of course, you know, American banks operate on the mainland and places like Moscow. So it's not that they're immune to uh, author more authoritarian environments either, uh, if there's money to be made. Um, having said that, I, I think the direction of Hong Kong is going, uh, in, in economically, is going to be a continuation of where things have been heading since the early 1980s, since the factories moved out of here and, and landed in Shenzhen. And that's becoming increasingly integrated with the mainland. Uh, and that is uh, the obvious government policy with this Greater Bay Area Initiative, uh, which has given Hong Kong companies kind of special incentives to invest in the immediate region. So uh, I, I think what you're looking, I, I think you're going to see the Hong Kong finance sector increasingly dominated by Chinese companies. Uh, and that's, that's been happening for the last 15, 20 years. So, um, I, you know, people here are calling it mainlandization. Is that good? Is that bad? Does that mean Hong Kong can, can continue to be the rich city that it is? Will it see a, a decrease in its income and its stature? That's, 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 it's not necessarily automatic that because you're changing and you're becoming more China-centric doesn't necessarily mean it's necessarily bad for growth or people's livelihoods. 
Uh, but I, but I think it definitely means the role of Hong Kong in the world that we've seen uh, is is going to shift. We have a response or a reaction to your comments about China's militarization. An anonymous attendee wrote in, you can still be a peaceful country by building up military might for protection. It does not mean China is not peaceful. China has not started any battles or instigated anything. Uh, well, I think you should ask the Vietnamese that and uh, the Koreans and the Tibetans and a lot of other people in the region. And I'm not talking about ancient history in the Tang Dynasty. I'm talking about what happened since the Communist Party has taken power. Uh, you know, this, yes, the, the Chinese have not uh, used military force in any significant way since the reform era started uh, in, in the 1980s. Uh, but uh, they did when they first took power. And, uh, and they, they were up until actually, well, it was 1979 when uh, China was at war with Vietnam. And that's, so that's relatively recent. Uh, so I, this, I, would, I would hope uh, that China is a peaceful power. And I would hope that they're building up their military uh, for entirely peaceful purposes. And that would be, that would be very nice. But uh, I think they're, uh, uh, the history and, uh, and even of, in modern times uh, gives us reason to be concerned that a China that is in increasing its military capabilities very rapidly and spending a lot of money on that military uh, may at some point be tempted to use it in the region. All right, we have unfortunately come to the end of our time. Michael, thank you very much for thank you. staying up so late to talk with us. Thanks to our audience and thank you to the National Committee staff members who are working behind the scenes to make this webinar possible. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org.